Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we are focusing on why we work and what we should do with our lives. A couple of pretty interesting questions and facts. And with me in the studio is Barry Schwartz. He is a professor of psychology at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. He's been there since receiving his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 1971. He's a young guy, I might add. Schwartz has written 10 books and more than 100 articles for professional journals. In 2004, Barry published The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. And in fact, he did a TED Talk that is pretty fabulous on the subject. He's got a new book out, and this is about why we work. Barry, welcome. Great to be with you. Great to have you here. Let's talk about who the happiest people are at work. Well, the happiest people at work are people whose work, uh, who have some autonomy and discretion about what they do and how they do it, who are challenged by the work, who get to learn new things, who uh, are respected by their uh, peers and by their supervisors, um, and most importantly, people who feel like at the end of the day, what they do has made somebody's life better. That is, people who get meaning out of their work. Those are the happiest people at work. Uh, you know, people wouldn't work if they didn't get paid. But it's kind of a consolation prize if all you get out of your work is a paycheck, no matter how big the paycheck is. You said something important that resonates for me, and that is the sense of autonomy. And I think this really hits something extremely important. I think it is extremely important. And, you know, increasingly, the way we have responded to disappointments in the workplace and also disappointments, I mean supervisors have responded, also disappointments in the way our social institutions work is we think we have to take autonomy away from the people who are actually doing the work and 
uh, you know, micromanage them, always looking over their shoulders. So teachers are given scripts to follow instead of using their own judgment about uh, what each kid needs and how each lesson should be taught. And the result, you take autonomy away from teachers and uh, just as an example, and two things happen. One is that they get worse at teaching and the other is that the good teachers stop teaching. They do something else. So it, I can't overemphasize the importance of autonomy. And, and the reason I think employers or supervisors are reluctant to give autonomy is they don't trust the people they supervise. Mm. Very interesting point. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a colleague last week. Sometimes um, I work crazy hours. I really love what I get to do in the world. And this woman said to me, well, why do you work such long hours? And I turned to her and this big smile on my face. I said, because my soul is my own when I do it this way. <laughs> well, you know, I've always said, I, I, you pointed out that I've been at Swarthmore for a long time. You know, I lucked into what is for me the perfect job. I think generally being an academic is a pretty damn good job because almost you get to do almost whatever you want pretty much all the time. Uh, and this is especially true at Swarthmore. There's very little bureaucratic nonsense. Um, they encourage you to develop and teach new courses. They encourage you to teach in interdisciplinary topics. So every new interest I've developed, I've been able to uh, cultivate uh, both in my scholarly work and also in the classroom. So I lucked into the perfect job when I was 25 and I was smart enough not to leave it. And to stay 25. <laughs> and to stay with, 25. With all the wisdom. Exactly so. <laughs> when I look in the mirror, that's what I see. 25. And holding. <laughs> and holding. What, what is the source of the assumption that nobody really wants to work? Because I, I don't buy into that. I don't either. Uh, uh, you know, in the book, I pin this perhaps a little unfairly on the father of modern economics, Adam Smith, who in his classic and incredibly important book, The Wealth of Nations, essentially articulated that people are basically lazy uh, and won't do anything unless you make it worth their while. And what that meant was to pay them. And once you paid them, it pretty much didn't matter what you asked them to do. And so the assembly line, the division of labor, the kind of factory model that has been passed down through the ages of people doing re repetitive, mechanical, mindless tasks over and over again, was the most efficient way to organize work because, as I say, it doesn't matter what people did as long as you were paying them. So I think that's where it started. I don't think he was right about what people cared about. But the thing is, and I make this point in the book as well, once all you see around you are people doing mindless, repetitive tasks in factories, it changes what you aspire to in work. Eventually, you come to believe that what Smith said is true. The only reason to work is to get a paycheck. Because why, why else would anyone do these horrible tasks? And it's more than just for the paycheck. It's working to get to the weekend. I mean, that's another way of looking. Oh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you know? work because you, work you have to. You know, um, some years ago I did research with, uh, with several colleagues, uh, lead among them uh, a woman named Amy Resnuski who teaches at Yale. And we, we found that some people think their work is a job and some people think it's a career, which means they're going somewhere. And some people think it's a calling. And the ideal is to have work that you regard as a calling. Uh, and if you have that kind of job, you don't say, thank God, it's Friday. You don't discourage your kids 
from following the same career path that you did. Uh, and, uh, and if you're, you know, you don't leave your job for one that pays you more. The trick is to cultivate in people this attitude that their work is a calling. And it's a real challenge because there are very few workplaces where the people who run the show encourage that attitude. I think you say something very interesting about about viewing work as a calling because it, the, a calling doesn't have to be something that is necessarily high and mighty nope. or complicated. It can be – I happen to live near some farmland and every day I pass through these fields and I see people – picking fruits and vegetables. And I think to myself, well, if I were in their shoes, um, and this is all they know, by the way, they, they come from South America, they've, they've come up the coast, are they able to cultivate their work as a calling? And if so, how? Right. I don't know the answer about the people picking fruits and vegetables in fields, but Amy, in another piece of research, studied hospital custodians which, as you, I'm sure you know, are the sort of the lowest people on the totem pole in a hospital, which is full of high-status people. And some of them were just punching a clock and doing the things that you would expect janitors to do, mopping floors, waxing, uh, emptying trash, and so on. But some of them thought their job was to do whatever was necessary to help the hospital function well. And that meant talking to patients and cheering them up, trying to calm down their families who were waiting anxiously uh, in waiting rooms, helping a nurse turn a, a large patient to, to avoid bed sores. None of that was in their job description. Uh, and yet that's why they got out of bed. So here they were, uh, sort of analogous to the people picking fruits and vegetables. And if you ask them, what do you do? You know, they'd say, well, I participate in uh, easing suffering and uh, curing disease. And, of course, it's true. If they didn't do their jobs well, hospital-borne infections would be even higher, uh, more frequent than they are. And you can imagine somebody working in a field uh, who has the view that I'm enabling people to eat healthy and nutritious food instead of the junk food that lines their supermarket shelves. Um, but, you know, if there's somebody standing over their shoulders uh, basically whipping them to pick a certain amount per hour – it's hard to sustain that attitude. Indeed. And how do we shift the culture to view this sense of calling in our work? Because it is the sense of calling is very highly developed in some fields and industries. It but is, but even, even in the ones where it's highly developed, there are all kinds of pressures to kill it. You know, lawyers are extremely unhappy with their work, although arguably they, you know, they're performing an incredible service in the interest of maintaining justice. Doctors are becoming increasingly unhappy because they don't think they can practice medicine the way they think it should be practiced. So you're right. Some uh, professions lend themselves to this attitude more than others, but we're managing to knock it out of even those professions. Um, and here's the, here's the puzzle. People who study uh, across different industries, um, the most and least successful companies find that the more the, a company – uh, uh, imbues the work with uh, the sense of meaning and, and purpose and treats employees uh, with respect and gives them discretion and autonomy, the more they do that, the more profitable they are. So in effect, by not doing that, companies are leaving money on the table. It's not just that they'd be doing a favor for their employees to change the atmosphere in the workplace. They'd be doing a favor for their shareholders too. 
And still, it's be, you know, nine, the Gallup Foundation found, Gallup poll, that uh, 87% of employees around the world are either unengaged or actively disengaged from their work. 87%. Which is astounding. We are going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Barry Schwartz. He is the author of the new book, Why We Work. And we're going to talk about happiness and productivity in the workplace. To learn more, please visit Barry Schwartz on Facebook at Barry Schwartz. And on Twitter, that handle is a bit different. It's Barry S C. H. And you can find him at swarthmore.edu. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Love to read? Looking to harvest your happiness? Then look no further. Lisa Cypress Kamen is an author of three amazing books that will assist in taking your well-being and self-mastery to the next level. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life offers breakthrough strategies for creating your own personal happiness revolution. Perspectives on addiction and integrated journey to wellness is an overview of the recovery process from a multi-stepped perspective and holistic approach of substance abuse and lifestyle management. Through her third book, Reintegration Strategies for Depression, Anxiety, Anger, Grief, and Post-Traumatic Stress, offers an own nonsense approach to dealing with post-combat civilian life reintegration issues for veterans and their families. You'll find these books online at Amazon.com and HarvestingHappiness.com. Saturday afternoons on 97.5. Joy riding the coast with a global vibe, pleasing your ears and inspiring your mind. Joy riding the coast with me, Lisa Cypress Cayman. Saturdays, 2 to 5, on 97.5. KBU and RadioMalibu.net. Mindful meditative moments are free and relaxing on-the-spot mini staycation journeys designed to calm the mind and soothe the body from the comfort of wherever you are. No reservations or travel required. Check out the playlists on HarvestingHappiness.com and Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes and SoundCloud. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal, and 
we're actually talking about something very inspirational having to do with why we work and how to create more productivity and joy in the workplace. And with me today is Barry Schwartz. He's a professor of psychology at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. He is the author of numerous books and articles, including The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. But his most recent book, which has just been published, we are talking about today entitled why we work. So Barry, prior to the break, we were talking about what happens in the workplace when employees have a little bit more autonomy. But what happens to workplaces when its employees are happier and they create a happy work environment? Well, it's, it, you know, it's kind of all good. It's uh, <laughs> kind of... Um, a virtuous circle gets created. Um, uh, Barbara Fredrickson has done a lot of research showing that when people are happy, when people are experiencing positive affect, they do better work. They work more creatively. They work more energetically. Uh, they're also almost certainly going to be better in social interactions. I mean, no one wants to interact with somebody who's basically muttering, when will Friday come <laughs> all day, every day. So, you know, nobody needs, nobody wants to hang out with Eeyore. So when you're happy, your social relations will go better uh, off, off the job and on the job. And that will almost certainly make your fellow workers um, more enthusiastic about their work. So, so once this process gets started, everyone is going to be more enthusiastic about being on the job and as a result do the job better, which will uh, make the company more money and probably make them more money in the long run. Uh, so there's just, you know, it, everybody wins. And the customers certainly win. You know, the customers win when you get on the phone with uh, somebody who's calling because their computer's not working right and you actually solve the problem instead of trying to end the phone call within five minutes. Yeah. You know, you've made somebody's day by, uh, by um, solving their problem and meeting their need. I suspect that there's very little encouragement of people who do that kind of work to actually solve people's problems rather than just get off the phone. But that taps, taps into the calling aspect, which you spoke of earlier, that when we approach what we do with a certain mindfulness and awareness, that if we are showing up to, to do a task or complete a deed, that when we do so with enthusiasm, with interest and focus that it becomes a more pleasurable experience and we do it better that's all yes. true and yes. i think we have in many workplaces not all we have the power to uh once again i refer to amy to craft our jobs you know so there is a job description but there's room within that job description for a little bit of um carving up um a job so that it suits you so as long as you're not excessively closely supervised, you can ask yourself, if I do my job well, who's going to benefit? And the answer to that is always, almost always going to be somebody is going to benefit. And if you focus on that, then you approach the questions that come into you in the call center differently. You approach the customers who come into you in a retail establishment differently. You're not there to sell them the most expensive stuff you can. You're there to solve their, whatever problem they think uh, buying something is going to solve for them. And that completely changes your, your attitude. You know, eight hours spent uh, selling uh, women's clothing in a department store is countless people 
whose lives you've made at least a little bit better. But it all requires that you don't have someone breathing down your neck and just screaming at you about productivity, productivity, productivity. What can we as individuals do to make our work experience better? I mean, we can have the, obviously the change in attitude, but I think there are a few other things that need to happen, especially when the corporate culture doesn't support this happy company, you know, ethos. It's a challenge. When the, co- when the corporate culture doesn't support it, it's still possible for you to craft a job in a way that, that will give you satisfaction. When the, cultural, uh, uh, when the corporate culture is actively hostile to it, then I think it's maybe time to look for another job. Um, but, you know, you can ask yourself, um, uh, how, how can I, in this interaction I'm about to have, how can I make the person at the other end of the interaction uh, uh, better off by the end of it? You can ask yourself that before every interaction. You can deliberately take on new and challenging tasks as long as the structure of the place makes that possible. So that every day at work is an opportunity to learn. Um, you know, and the result is that you'll be more engaged. You won't just be pushing paper around. Uh, and you'll see yourself develop. Uh, uh, your competence will grow. You'll develop as a human being. So, but all that requires at the very least that you have permission, if not active encouragement, from the employer. The permission and, uh, and as you said, I think the, the curiosity, I haven't had an experience. I live in Malibu. I live in a beach community that's quite small with a big name. And occasionally I pull through one of the big drive throughs to get something to drink and iced tea. And there is a woman there that she is, you know, sitting in this little control station booth taking orders for eight hours a day. She has the most lovely, positive energetic attitude about her when you drive up to the window and you pay for your drink she makes eye contact her eyes are alive and this is something that she probably was her nature and then she got to nurture it because of the view she took of the work that she's doing that's right and she didn't have somebody breathing down her neck and making sure that she was uh, you know following whatever the official company script was that's right and you know this is the sort of thing that when you encounter it you want to know how you can put it in a bottle and market it so that everybody has this attitude. There used to be a crossing guard um, uh, at a street near Swarthmore. You know, he was out in the morning when the little kids were walking to school to make sure that nobody got hit by a car and stuff like that. And this is analogous to doing the drinks, you know. You just stand there and making sure no crazy drivers kill little kids. But his attitude was every day was a chance to say hello to these, you know, bright, smiling five, six, and seven-year-olds, and to say hello to these drivers who are, you know, making their regular commute every day so he'd see the same people day after day. And the result is he made everybody's day, including his own. And I would see him and I'd go, how the hell do you get to be that way? And I don't know the answer to that. You know, in my case, the job has all these incredibly attractive characteristics that challenge me and engage me. I'm not sure I could create them uh, in a in a less for myself in a less um, in, in a more hostile environment, but that's what he does, and that's what your person selling you uh, coffee does. Well, it is it is a real pleasure to witness, and and going back to your janitor sample, I remember that when my daughter was born, she is now a freshman in college, but the janitor came into the room a few hour a few hours after she was born. 
And I can't remember if it was a man or a woman, but I remember what was said. And the person looked at me and and said, that's when you see God. Mm. Now, that person's lucky that there wasn't a supervisor outside who then beat him up for interacting with the patient. Exactly. Uh, So, no, 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 I think that's, you know, that's right. And I had an experience caring for an old uh, aunt by long distance, and she was, uh, you know, she was suffering from Alzheimer's disease, and I hired uh, these um, attendants basically to be with her around the clock. Luckily, she had the resources to pay for it. But, you know, she would abuse them uh, mercilessly because she (laughs) just wasn't in her right mind anymore. Right. And they just took it, and they were kind to her. They were loving to her like she was a member of their own family. And I would have strangled this woman, who actually was a member of my own family. <laughs> and Very I just funny. said, I don't know what they have. I don't have it. I wish I did. It's, it's really something to see. And it changes everything. You know, when a person like that is around, it just transforms the mood in the whole place. It elevates everybody. It does. It, and it makes you try to be your best self. It makes you try to do your job as well as you possibly can. Because, you know, you've got this shining example. And, you know, what's your excuse for being sour and just, you know, just going through the motions? Well, this makes the case for happiness as being that positive contagion that we know it is. But this is proof. This is proof positive when we when we see this in action. You are a TED man. You have have several TED talks. I, I believe. have, and I love your talks, by the way. But I am unfamiliar with your latest, and I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about it because it complements the books that the book that has it just does. Been published. well what happened was they invited me back in the 30th anniversary of ted they invited some of the people back who had who had given talks that had been seen by lots of folks and the choice talk that you mentioned was seen by something like eight million people um so i decided to give a talk on work and so i did and that was almost two years ago and they deliberately did not post it because they asked me when I was there if I would write a book. So this new book, Why We Work, is a TED book. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and it's a short book. It's 100 pages. Uh, so it's, you know, it's sort of made for the modern age with, nobody, with short attention spans. So when the book came out at the beginning of September, they posted the TED Talk. So if people go to the TED website, they can find it. And even though it doesn't take long to read a 100-page book, it'll take even less time to watch a nine-minute TED Talk. Wow. Well, Barry Schwartz, you are an absolute delight, and you make my job an absolute pleasure. And I know it's a calling, but now it's been validated as a pleasure. (laughs) You make it very easy. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. To learn more about Barry Schwartz, his books, his career, you can visit www.swarthmore.edu and input his name in the search bar. On Facebook, he is at Barry Schwartz. And on Twitter, that handle is at Barry S-C-H. And the latest book is Why We Work. It's a TED Talk. You can find it on TED.com. You can find the book at TED.com as well, you said? Well, there's a they'll, they'll, if you go to the the TED website, they'll have a link there. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in bookstores. You can find it everywhere because this this is a positive contagion that's been released (laughs) upon the world. And I thank you for it, Barry Schwartz. And thanks for joining us. 
We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Remember what it feels like to receive a gift? We all know nothing gives happiness like a present, so you should unwrap yours at harvestinghappiness.com and sign up to receive your free ebook, Got Happiness Now, that offers simple, user friendly ways to get greater happiness in your world each and every day. That's harvestinghappiness.com. Lisa Cypress-Kamen has built an impressive global lifestyle management consulting company offering applied positive psychology, mindfulness, and integrated well-being coaching. Her services, including addiction and trauma recovery support, as well as life crisis triage, are available worldwide through phone, video, and on-site. In addition, Lisa delivers workshops, lectures, and trainings to corporations and institutions and is a frequent guest expert on many prominent radio and TV shows. Connect with us at Harvesting Happiness for more information. Harvesting Happiness for Heroes is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation offering innovative and integrated stigma-free combat recovery services to veterans and their loved ones with programming that focuses on the transformation of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth using scientifically proven positive psychology coaching tools and strategies that increase self-mastery, self-awareness, and self-esteem to help heal the invisible wounds of war. To make a tax-free charitable contribution or to learn more, please visit Visit hh4heroes.org. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about a juicy subject. We're talking about creating a life, a career of purpose and meaning. Maybe you ask the question, who or what do I want to be when I grow up? And I have someone with me today who might be able to share some insight into how we can glean and create the answers. Poe Bronson has built a career both as a successful novelist and as a prominent writer of narrative nonfiction. He has published several books and has written for television, magazines, and newspapers, including the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, as well as National Public Radio's Morning Edition. Poe Bronson's book of social documentary, What Should I Do With My Life, was a number one New York Times bestseller and remained there in the top ten for several months. His first novel, Bombardier, and I'm probably completely bastardizing that, and I apologize, Poe, was number, a number one bestseller in the United Kingdom. His books have been translated into more than 19 languages. Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman's New York Magazine articles on the science of parenting won the Journalism Award from the National Association for the Advancement of Science. In short, Poe is a really awesome man. He's an awesome author, father, insight, and great thinker. Um, Poe, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, I, I appreciate you coming on because I know in, in a certain sense you have moved on from what should I do with my life professionally, but yet the question remains, 
so relevant in so many people's minds as we travel through life. And that's why I wanted to talk, to talk with you today. Yeah, you know, I, I, I began this project, I want to say, during the dot-com boom, you know, of like 1999. I was covering it for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times Magazine, and Wired. And, you know, I could just see that this was going to crash. And I could just see that people had lost their way. And were chasing myths and money, and I felt like that was the whole, this buzz around the whole country, especially in what I think of as sort of my generation, I felt like we lost our way, and I I quit it all, I stopped working in TV, I quit all those magazines, and I decided to go tell real people's stories, and tell stories of people changing their life, I worked on the book, I've been working on the book for about a year when 9-11 happened, and it, you know, deepened the country's mood and introspection and recognition of needing to sort of find what was real and what really mattered and what was fluff in our lives. And uh, the book came out in January 2003. So it's quite a long time ago, you know, but it's timeless. And I, I always like to talk about it now and then. I'm glad you have me on the show. I don't regularly talk about the book and what I learned. Uh, I, especially in the book itself, I tell the stories uh, of 50 of the people that I'd interviewed. I'd actually interviewed almost 1,000 people. And I focused on 50, and I told their stories. The real, the real psychological and literal process they went through to, to sort of change their life. And I didn't want to gloss it, you know. I didn't. I didn't want to try to tell some easy story. I wanted to tell the hard story that I'd actually gone through. But uh, everybody wanted to continue to follow these as if they were characters in their lives, and I needed to let these people go back to their private life. <laughs> Eventually, I just sort of stopped talking about them because it wasn't fair to these people. They had let me in, and I needed to let them go and let them, you know, be a moment in time and not live in the public eye for the next decade. Yeah. And yet, the question, you know, it's probably one of the biggest questions that we will ask ourselves. The, the word should in the title. You know, there's a difference between what do I want to be when I grow up, which a lot of people think that's the title of the book. Like, they've read the whole book and they turn it, you've got to read this book, what do I want to be when I grow up? And it's not that. It's actually what should I do with my life. And should is a very scary word to people. It, to some, it brings up like their parents telling them, you should do this, right? And it's, it's a threatening word. To others, it, there's a moral imperative in it, which is, you know, we are doing this with our life. But what should we be doing? There's a religious con connotation of calling in it. Uh, and there's a notion to many people in the title of serving the world in some way. And it's so interesting. People just look at the title and they look at the cover and they almost immediately have a reaction, almost immediately have a number of thoughts that provoke in them kind of an internal war and dialogue. It's like they haven't even started reading the book and they're already deeply engaged. And that's how I came upon the book. I believe I was going through an airport and I was about to go back to graduate school 
in midlife, and I saw the title and it grabbed my attention so because I thought it's, yeah, what, sh- what should I do with my life? You know, ostensibly my life at the time was happy. My children were little and I, they were thriving and I was a stay-at-home mom at the time and transitioned out of a career in architecture, a very, very different field. And it, 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 it called me and that's when I started thinking about the, the should in the context of service, the should in the context of living not the good life but the right life for me. So that's fascinating. So this book came to you at that point where you were making this change, but exactly what it meant in your life was something you still had to explore and discover and steer, if you will. Yes, it was a TBD, you know, the big TBD. (laughs) (laughs) And the topic is still very relevant today because in in working with clients privately and in groups that I, I moderate in workshops, it often comes up people feel like they're peter pan or they they're doing something that they don't love or in a life that doesn't feel like it is the right one for them and how do we serve these people how do we ask more questions that help them figure it out because it's not the job of somebody on the outside it's the job of the individual with the with the help of good examples and mentors along the way that demonstrate through action, not through instruction. Well, let's take the, the Peter Pan case, right? It's pretty interesting. It, that's a broad term, and it can kind of mean a few different things, but it's really interesting kind of bucket or personality that's going through this. And, and, and the Peter Pan individual is bouncing around you know, kind of merry, not really rooted anywhere, and they're looking here and there and then kind of not figuring it out. And one of the tricks of this, uh, a lot of people will come to the book and they'll actually get mad. And they'll say, you know, I wish I could just go do whatever it is I really want to do. Like, you know, I want to open a bed and breakfast in Fiji. You know, I'd love to do that, right? Uh, I would love to start a a greeting card business, you know, but but I have responsibilities, and it's a really interesting, like, angry dichotomy because I am always very clear to point out: when did you think that your responsibilities were not part of finding your purpose? Your responsibilities are often the most important part of finding your purpose, and mm-hmm. To the Peter Pan concept, you know, you need to, uh, it's not just at your whim, you need to start with your responsibilities and build your purpose around that. There's an old parable of the three bricklayers. And there's a certain way it's told, and I argue it should, its real meaning is different. So the three bricklayers are working all morning laying bricks, and there's a break. And they sit down and they're break, having a little break. And one of the three guys says to the other, why are you guys doing this? And the first guy says, I'm doing it for the wages. I need the money. And the second guy says, I'm doing it for my family. Meaning he needs the money to help support his family. And the third guy stops and he turns and he points to what they've been building. And he says, which is a which is a church, a house of worship. And he says, I'm helping to build a cathedral. 
Now, the way the parable is normally told, the third guy has it right, and the first two guys kind of have it wrong. They're like on some junior-level sense of purpose. But I would argue that they all have a cathedral. The third person has this cathedral of spirituality, which is wonderful. The second person has a cathedral of family, and the first person has a cathedral of self-sufficiency. They are all finding meaning and purpose in their work. Notice the real lesson in this is what none of the three bricklayers are saying. Not one of them says, I just love laying bricks, right? Yep. And the Peter Pan is out there looking for the thing he or she just loves to do. Like, I just love laying bricks. And that's not how we actually build meaning when we find it. We build meaning because it's connected to our responsibilities. It's connected to a larger sense of than just ourselves. Yeah. Well, and I think it is that very sense of interconnectedness, that it's not just me for myself, although I gain pleasure, and I'm sure you gain pleasure from the things that you enjoy, but there's, there's a tether to something else. There's a thread that, that leads you to another thread, that leads you to a, a piece of tapestry that you're weaving that is your life. Well, the Peter Pan mentality is often someone who find something like this is this part is fun like um you know they they're working in a in, in in a retail experience for example and and they enjoy lots of it but then they go you know but i just really hate having to stay late and sweep up at the end of the day and so because there's this part of the job that that they don't like this part of the job that's sort of frustrating demeaning to them they, they figure, well, this is not it. This is not the one. This is not the thing I've been flying around looking for. And they write it off and they quit and they go look for something else. When in fact, there is no, no job that people love that doesn't have some part of it that is really frustrating, tiring, and annoying, and personalities that you have to put up with. Uh, but that's what it takes to accomplish something. You have to have a larger sense of perspective in order to not let those defeat you. And that's how people find, when they find meaning, that's what it is. The people who are really happy in their work certainly have plenty of sort of grunt work and menial work and interactions with bad personalities. It's still there. Good point. Well taken. And we are going to have to have one of those moments right now. We are going to have to dance our way to break gracefully and come back and continue the conversation with Poe Bronson. To learn more, please visit PoeBronson.com. On Facebook, that page is Top Dog Book. And on Twitter, you can find Poe at Poe Bronson, as well as Nurture Shock, which is one of his other books, one of his latest books. And we're going to get a chance to talk about that when we return as well. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Lisa Cypress Kamen. 
author of Got Happiness Now, is also a prestigious TEDx presenter. Her talks, The Mysteries of Fear and the Inversion Theory of Joy, can be found online at TED.com and on the Harvesting Happiness YouTube channel. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Check out the critically acclaimed documentary film, H Factor, Where Is Your Heart? An insightful visual journey from Lisa Cypress-Kamen, showing that every person possesses the means to be happy. Follow Lisa and her nine-year-old daughter, Kayla, as they travel the world on the hunt for the universal keys to human happiness. Their question? What makes you happy? Discover the origins of human happiness, where to find it, create it, and keep it. Find it in our shop at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking about passion, purpose, place, and meaning in life, a favorite topic around here that inevitably, when done well and with heart and soul, finds us in a happier place, perhaps, than we had been before. And my guest today is Poe Bronson. He is a a wonderful author. He's written several books, but we're talking about a book that he wrote several years ago that struck a chord with me personally. And that's why I invited him to join me today. The book was entitled, What Should I Do With My Life? And prior to the break, we were talking about how when we take up an activity, uh, albeit a hobby or a profession that we believe that we love and something comes along in, in the course of doing that that we don't enjoy, that we might abandon that because we don't enjoy every aspect and therefore we interpret that as meaning it's not what we should be doing. And Poe was saying, you know, with, every, with everything that we do, there are going to be tasks that are not 100% enjoyable, that are not 100% happy. So carrying on with the theme of, I, I think it's taking the good with the bad, Poe, um, tell us more about how we find what we should do with our lives. Yeah, so you said taking good with the bad. I, I call it a 50-50 deal. So we, we imagine when we see people, like if there's people who admire you and what you're doing and they think, oh, that wonderful opportunity happened to you to have this show and, or to me. Uh, this wonderful opportunity happened to me to be a writer. And, so, and they imagine that what you do is you look somewhere for a great opportunity. And they keep not finding a great opportunity. And then they... So they don't make any changes and they stay stuck in the thing that's just making them unhappy. So that's a myth. 
in fact, that you that many people at all ever bump into great opportunities. It kind of doesn't happen. And if you study how real people did it, how they arrived at something that really gives them a sense of meaning and purpose and calling. In fact, you don't find that story. What you find is that for many years and many different turns in life, they mostly made the best of a bad situation. Mm. They didn't have a good opportunity. They kind of had a crummy one, you might say. But they found ways to make the best of it. And in what they were doing there, you could say that they were sort of leveling up their situation. They were transforming the crummy into good. And they got very proficient at that step of transformation. And then one day along comes not a great opportunity, but just a good one, a good one. And now taking their proficiency, their capacity to transform it, they turn what is sort of an innocuous good opportunity into a great situation. One of the most important things that people can harvest is their own capacity to transform the bad into good and the good into great. Yeah. And to not go looking, because you'll never find it, if you're looking for great opportunities. Now and then you'll hear some story and that'll get passed around and everyone think, wow, what a lucky guy. You know, well, I wish that happened to me. But it's not going to happen to you. What will happen to you is the occasional good opportunity. And if you're the really capable of transforming it, you'll make it a great opportunity. And I would add that the, the persistence or the stick-to-itiveness and the willingness to have some failures along the way are intrinsic to the success. Oh, yeah. And that's whether, you know, even in the beginning, um, a lot of people who saw What Should I Do With My Life read, flipped through a few chapters and they, and they would go, oh, you know, I wish I could just quit my job, lay on the couch and have this deep year of introspection or 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 use my bank account to travel the world and find myself right and it's the truth is that people are not usually the architects of their own change they they usually stick with what they've got and trying to make the best of it and then change is forced on them right they they get laid off or, or their company moves they they have a new boss who doesn't like them. Uh, they're too far away from their kids. They're, to travel is too much. You know, so they get divorced. Um, their parents are sick. They need to go take care of their parents. Change is, is pushed on people. And then if they work with it, in that change, they sort of discover new parts of themselves. But if you, again, by studying people who actually found it, the story didn't really begin with them just, you know, doing a take this job and shove it thing. It, it came along with lots of, like, even you were mentioning, you know, your, you had your kids and you made a transition. The, these, the idea that somehow we start it all by ourselves, it's more like changes kind of coming on us and then we make the best of it. 
And it makes me think of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and the call to adventure, that something, something whispers in our ear yeah. that the, the homeostasis perhaps is no longer valid. And then, because we, you know, it's, it's, this is tricky because, <laughs> because, because we do want to see our lives as these journeys in this heroic journey in this, at this mythic level. In the book, I, I tell people of a Tibetan Rinpoche that had to find his way in life. I tell the story of a, of a saleswoman from Texas who was out in New Mexico and literally heard and had an epiphany, had a, had a voice whispering in her ears. And uh, I, I tell stories of a woman in London who had incredible synchronicity, you know, amazing coincidences keep seeming to steer her towards a change in life. And we wonder, what, how, should, we, should we wrap ourselves in this sort of uh, mythic quality, one might say grandiose quality, one might say delusional quality. You know, we don't know. The, the thing about, the, about the, the hero's journey is to remember the, that it's hard. Yeah. And it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, you wouldn't learn anything. And it's okay that it's hard. A lot of people, I know you counsel them, and I'm sure they struggle with, why is it so hard? It yeah. should be so easy in life just to, please, somebody, tell me, what is the thing I'm supposed to be doing, right? Where, please, just a voice from the wilderness whisper in my ear, <laughs> tell me, I'm supposed to have a radio show, you know, just tell me. Now, here's the thing. What's... What's wrong with that conceit, that way of imagining this, is that we're all looking for that one thing we're meant to do. And the problem with that is that it makes it seem like finding a needle in a haystack. We are not meant to do one thing. We're there are so many great opportunities and fields and areas any one of which would be great. You don't have to find the singular one. You have to find any one of them and then turn it into this great situation. And if we frame it as somehow we're looking for this mystical needle in the haystack, then we probably won't find it. If we realize any one of these many great opportunities will work for me. And we don't doubt ourselves that, you know, you have a great situation, but you're, you've made it great, but you're still wondering out there, oh, is there something yet better for me? You know, even as a writer, it's hard. And I wonder a lot, you know, should I be doing something else? And then I remind myself, I go back and read my own book, and I remind myself, well... I could probably do this other thing or that other thing, but this thing too, I, it, that it's hard is okay. And keep working and keep trying to make a difference in the world. Yeah, I think it does come back to trying to make a difference. 
you know, to leave leave this planet just a little bit different or better than when we when we arrived here. That's what I tell my kids, you know. Me too. <laughs> uh, my kids are 11 and, and and 14. My older son is just in high school and I I just we just tell them, you know, um the world needs your help. The world yeah. needs your help. Get some skills, go out, find some place where you can help. You can make it better. Doesn't matter which one. If you're doing that, you're and and you are making a contribution to the world. You're going to be you're going to be great. You're going to be doing just fine. Everything's going to work out if you find ways that you feel like you're helping. Hence the bricklayer. Hence the bricklayer. Yeah. <laughs> you have a a new book that's out and the show is focusing in a very different direction, but I wanted to give our listeners sort of the heads up about Top Dog in the in the 30, 30 second micro description. So Top Dog is a book about the science of competition. And I know it sounds a little weird, but to me, competition is at the core of our business markets and education with students competing with each other and our philosophies and our world of athletics. And Ashley and I wanted to delve deep into what are the factors uh, of performance on an individual and on a kind of a structural basis that bind together the world of politics, history, business, and sports. And to learn more about Top Dog, um, listeners can go to poebronson.com. Is there a website for the book as well? Topdogbook.com. Perfect. We are out of time, and I want to thank you for, for joining me today. And maybe you'll come back and talk about competition. I, we could easily devote a show about that. Oh, sure. That, yeah. would, be, that would be great fun. Um, to find out more, as I mentioned, poebronson.com, topdogbook.com. On Twitter, the handle is at poebronson. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought sold or traded happiness will never invite you to the party happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion purpose place and meaning thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness talk radio this is lisa cypers gaiman and my wonderful guests today barry schwartz and poe bronson wishing you kind thoughts kinder words and the kindest of actions until next time remember happiness is an inside job And thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. Go out and make it a great one. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.